I want to ask you something. Do you feel really overwhelmed by social media? How do you feel about networking right now? I'm not trying to stress you out with these questions, but I do think that they're important, especially coming out of 2020. Even when it comes time to me promoting my personal brand, which honestly doesn't happen as often as it should, I still find myself floundering between different social media channels. And when it comes to networking, I'm very grateful that I'm not in some hotel ballroom listening to people talk and feeling cramped next to people, which was our reality before COVID hit. But the reason I'm asking you these questions is because today I have on a guest who is a personal branding expert and thought leadership expert. Her name is Eva, and she has done so much work to build up a community for herself and for her own personal brand. What I love about my conversation with Eva is that she's so intentional about the way that she does her day to day. So you'll hear her talk about these micro communities that she started and also how she practices social media monogamy, which is really not something that I had heard of until this interview. If you're looking to feel inspired and just want to get out of your own head when it comes to what you do in your day-to-day life and finding purpose for your own personal brand and what your own thought leadership looks like, today's episode is going to be perfect for you. I think you're going to find a lot of interesting tips and tricks that you can apply to your own day-to-day that will make you feel like you're creating more meaningful connections with others. So I hope you love this episode and I will catch you guys on the flip side. I would love to hear about your business. Tell everyone a little bit about what you do and on a day-to-day basis, what do you do every single day of your journey into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So I'll start with the marketing tagline and then get more specific from there. So I help women defy the status quo and amplify our influence and expand our wealth and power through thought leadership. So there's a couple parts of that that I want to break down. Well, the main one being thought leadership, right? Like this is sort of a business jargon term that some people, it's very clear to them what it means. Other folks are like, what are you even talking about? And when I talk about thought leadership specifically, I work with my clients on what I call magnetic thought leadership. And that's this idea of taking your opinions without mitigating them, taking your beliefs, your perspective, your experience, all of your knowledge and wisdom from your life or from your work, and taking a stand on the things you believe in and communicating those to your audience in a way that attracts lucrative clients and opportunities to you, but also repels uh, haters, although not always, because haters are always going to hate, but that really just you know, isn't to the taste of people that you wouldn't want to work with. And so magnetic thought leadership is, it's a communication tool, it's a marketing tool, but really importantly, it's also a personal and professional development practice of always cultivating your own thinking and learning and articulating what you really believe, what you stand for, and the impact that you want to have. Ooh, that's powerful. And how did you decide to go into this? Yeah, I get, I get very, I was like, I, you can't see me, obviously anyone listening, but like, I'm like 
gesticulating wildly because I get very fervent <laughs> talking about this because I did start, you know, my background is in marketing in the first several years I was in business, I did marketing, but I always had this feeling that marketing was both like too big and too small for what I really wanted to do. And so it kind of, I was doing this like thought leadership partnership and thought leadership communication and advisory for a long time without having the words for it. I just called it like content marketing for a long time. And I actually, my, my educational background is I got a gender and women's studies degree when I was in university to which everyone and their uncle asked me like what kind of a job I was going to get when I graduated. <laughs> so that was never boring entirely. What did you think at that time that you were going to do? I actually thought I was going to stay in academia for a while. I liked research a lot. I was always like very good at school and I, I liked the structure and I liked the learning. And fast forward to now, I, it's very hard to imagine going back to school and I don't regret that the decision to, to pursue a different path at all. But that's what I thought at first. That's so interesting. I, it's funny. I feel like every time I interview someone for the podcast and we talk about what they studied in school, there's pretty much no one that ever studied what they're currently doing, which I think is very interesting. It's almost like a moment in our life where we have to make a decision on what we want to do for the rest of our lives. But we're, it's almost like there's some uncertainty there too, because you don't really know. So it's funny because most people just don't have relevant major experience to what they currently do. Yeah. I've noticed the same thing, certainly in my life and many, many, many of my peers. And I don't know, like if you were to go, so if you were to go to university now, Sam, like, would you, would you study the same thing you did or would you study the same thing that you do now? Like that's sometimes a question I ask myself and it's interesting to notice my own answers. I'm weird because I totally would. I was a journalism Ah. major and then I was a strategic marketing focus. So I new. I feel very fortunate. And I've talked to a few people about this because I feel really grateful that I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I had just like this conviction of of what I wanted to study and what I wanted to do. But 99% of the people that I talked to, and then I know we're not the same. Even yeah. the people that I went to school with, most of them are not doing what we studied. So I think it's very common. And I even think for people who are younger who are listening, it's okay if it's not what you want to do long-term. So how do you pivot when your family was asking you, where are you going to take your degree? When you studied and you graduated and and you had this degree, when did you have that thought in your mind of like, oh, I, I want to do marketing? I never had a good comeback that I can recall for like the, what are you going to do with your degree question, sadly. <laughs> so I can't offer You're any like, advice uh... on that one. <laughs> I didn't have a snappy comeback, but I think what you just said, Sam, is a good point in terms of like younger listeners, but even like listeners of any age, it always gives me so much reassurance and inspiration when I meet a woman, especially someone older than I, who has, who has made multiple pivots in her career. And I find that there are many of those. And I have, I meet a lot of people, I'm a very avid and intentional networker. And I meet a lot of women who are, who have had a corporate career and are now transitioning into entrepreneurship. And it always reminds me, you can always turn left or turn right and make a different choice. And I just, I think that's so important to be, to remind ourselves of that and to expose ourselves to people with those experiences, because I certainly wasn't taught that or, or I didn't see that modeled to me when I was younger. It wasn't until I started really purposefully meeting people and like exposing myself to that kind of way of being that I learned it's very common. 
Do you think that more women are transitioning to becoming entrepreneurs because entrepreneurship right now is more talked about than it ever has been before? Or do you think that there's just this tipping point of corporate burnout where people just realize that they don't want to do it anymore? That's an interesting question. And I don't have, I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I think some of many of the women I've talked to who are transitioning from corporate into entrepreneurship, it's simply that it's just time. They're ready to make a change. They are around or approaching retirement age where they don't want to just play golf full time. And so they're, there's sort of like a cycle in their career and that cycle, the first cycle, the corporate cycle is coming to a close. And so they're entering the next cycle. I wouldn't be surprised if, if entrepreneurship is more appealing now than previously because of the internet, because of the pandemic, but I haven't seen any stats on that. So I don't know for sure. Yeah. That's a, I mean, you're, that's a good call out to, to think about whether or not there's stats behind it. I haven't either, but I am curious always about the transition into entrepreneurship if people are just more excited to do it because they hear about it more often. What about the clients that you work with? When do you find that that clients need your help? At what stage are they at in their business usually? So I work with women primarily and they are they either already identify as thought leaders or they can see how positioning themselves as thought leaders in their field would be really beneficial, would bring them a lot of benefits in terms of visibility, networking, opportunities. And so my clients are typically in the, what I call women helping women economy, or more broadly, you could say the social impact economy, but folks who are really focused on providing services that impact gender equity and inclusion, racial equity and inclusion, other social issues that are really important to be addressed. And when they come to me, they're usually pretty well established. You know, they've been in their business for a while. They have their personal brand or their company brand, and they have some body of work, you know, whether they have public speaking experience or they've written books or they've written articles. And they're at the point where they they need really like a collaborator to help them develop their thinking further and kind of keep them accountable to doing that. And then also to leverage all of the assets that they already have. Because what often happens is you might have a blog or you might do videos or you might have a podcast and a lot of your content ends up kind of withering on the vine because you're not either yourself or someone on your team, you don't have the mechanisms in place to really give that content, what I call give it legs over time and make sure you're always repurposing it and making sure that it sees the light of day and that it gets shared with a wider audience. So I help my clients to do those things. And what does thought leadership mean to you? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So thought leadership, like A lot of people have heard of it, but I think there is a lot of confusion about what it means. And I think most broadly, it's this idea of someone who is an expert in their field and they're recognized as an authority and they're sought out for that. I think that definition is like perfectly adequate and kind of boring. And so what I work on with my clients is what I call magnetic thought leadership, which is the idea that you are creating content that provides provocative insights and takes a strong position. So it's, you know, you really are putting a stake in the ground in your thought leadership. It has an intellectual impact on its audience and it positions you, the creator, as an authority to help you build your wealth and pave the way for the social change that you want to see. Love that. And do you ever find that people that 
should care more about thought leadership, maybe just don't recognize or realize that they have those capabilities. I mean, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome and I think the HBR article that everyone's referencing of like, stop telling women that they have imposter syndrome is such a good one. But deep down, I think there's still a level of, there's just a lack of confidence for a lot of women. They don't see themselves necessarily as being a thought leader or being able to write provocative thoughts on social media. Is is there ever an opportunity where you realize you recognize the the potential in someone and maybe they just don't see it themselves? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like a lot of people, when they hear the word thought leader, they might think of someone like Brene Brown, who is basically a celebrity, you know, like her platform is enormous. People, you know, she's being, her books have been translated into many, many languages. She's, she's a huge figure in, in, in our culture. And in terms of her impact on certainly like on the way people think and behave, And so if you think of a thought leader and you think of Brene Brown, it's very easy to feel intimidated because the gulf between most of us and where she is, is just enormous. So what I think is really useful, well, two things. One is to remember that Brene Brown, back in the day before she was famous, she actually started as a shame researcher. She started in something so niche and frankly unpopular I did not know that. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, this was back in like the early 2000s. Wow. That she was able, and so she was able to build authority in this tiny, tiny niche that a lot of people were not willing to touch. And she was able to leverage and build her platform from there into what she's known for today, which is something very broad, leadership or, or courage and vulnerability. And so I think it's really helpful if you're feeling some qualification itis, or if you feel like, well, I just... I'm, I could never, I don't have enough. I don't have what it takes. I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not an expert enough yet is to think of yourself as a local thought leader, a local expert. And I don't mean geographically local. I mean, in terms of a very narrow specific thing that you know well or do well. And all of us either have that or can cultivate that. And it can feel very risky at first to, to hone in on something so narrow, but if you take Brene Brown as an example, you can see how incredibly powerful it is to be, be very well known and become an authority in a very narrow thing. Love that. Oh, that's good. What are the steps that you help when a new client comes to you? Do you do an evaluation of what they're currently doing? Or is it more kind of like, I don't want to say like a therapy session, but a lot of times <laughs> with, with me and my clients, like sometimes it does feel like a therapy session of like really just like reestablishing where do you want your business to go? What are you envisioning for yourself? Like what's the starting point for you with clients? Yeah. So the first thing is to be really clear on what I think of as your thought leadership queendom. So you have your domain, you have your business, you have different ways that clients or prospective clients will come to learn about you. You might have some networking practices or some referral partners. So you have, you, you come to the table with the assets that you have. And so first it's important to think about where your thought leadership is going to fit into the queen, your queendom. So I think of thought leadership always as an asset that can be used in multiple ways. And so do you have an email list? No, then let's talk about building one and what that would take. Do you publish on social media? No, well, let's talk about what that could look like. How do you stay connected with people that you meet or referral partners? Let's talk about how thought leadership could support that. 
And so there's first kind of this lay of the land that we take. And then from there, the actual creation process, I do have a methodology and a framework that I teach and to take my clients through from their kind of, it usually starts with, with big ideas or very general, broad topics. And from there, I encourage them to get really narrow and niche and to take that narrow niche topic. You know, we go through the production process and once it's ready to be published, we plug it into those different places we identified in the beginning in their ecosystem or their queendom to make sure that it's really pulling its weight in the long term. Do you find that people, when, like as you're talking about that, that evaluation and, and partnering with your clients on that, do you find that it's really hard for clients to separate themselves from the brand that they've built? Like I, a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of personal branding in the sense that, yeah, that you showing up as what you call to be a, a thought leader and really extending that part of your brand. Like that's really, really important. And being able to put a face to a brand for a lot of people humanizes the brand a lot more, but do you ever find it difficult that maybe some people are like, well, you know, I don't want to infringe on the brand that I've built because I am not my brand. Hmm. I haven't come across that much because I tend to work with women who are kind of inextricably linked to their brands. So they are the brand. Got it. So like, they're more like, like, can you give an example of, of a title of someone that you might be working with? So one example is, so you mentioned the um, HBR article that's going around right now called, um, I think it's called Stop Telling Women We Have Imposter Syndrome. Yep. And one of the co-authors of that article is a client of mine. And so her name is Ruchika Tulshian. And she is, I'm trying to recall her exact title to name, but she, or her exact title to mind, but she does diversity and inclusion consulting. Got it. So, so that answer your question. Yeah, that does. That's interesting. So, so for her, it's more so like elevating her in alignment with that focus, really. Her name. Yeah. So, I mean, I tend to work with service providers. So, I tend to work with consultants, coaches, authors, speakers, and so they are they are their brand. I mean, they might have a company name in addition, but like they're the ones doing the keynotes. They're the ones writing the books. They're the ones a lot of times, if they're not delivering the coaching and consulting, they used to, and they are now in charge of consultants and coaches that work under them. And so I think Brene Brown is such a useful example. Brene Brown now has certifications and people who are certified to do her work, but she's still the brand. That makes perfect sense. It's hard for me because I work with a lot of clients who their brand is their life. I work with an e-commerce brand, right? So it's 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 different than a service provider where like they really are their own brand. So that's a good that's a good distinction to make. So like a client of yours, like so is, is e-commerce an example? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we could kind of workshop this if we wanted to here on the air, but I think it's so interesting to wonder how could someone who sells products or who maybe isn't tied to their brand in the sense that they're doing keynotes or writing books. I still think thought leadership, and I think this is going to be increasingly important given how people are driven by values and impact that Mm. if the company isn't producing mission aligned content that their potential buyers and even their employees can engage with, I think they're missing an opportunity to basically build like evangelists even and followers, so to speak for their brand. 
I agree. We had, we did a clubhouse chat a few weeks ago with some people that had been on the podcast. A majority of them are in the e-com product tech space. And we were talking about this because I think for some women, it's really hard for them to show up in their business in addition to their e-commerce brand. Mm -hmm. They're so used to associating themselves so closely with their job and their brand that the thought leadership and the personal brand that they could be creating doesn't really exist, right? So the, the personal brand side needs to be built out a little bit more because they are not there their brand, they are the purpose of the brand, kind of like what you're talking about. And I'm sure with a lot of clients, but you're like, you're talking about diversity and inclusion, like that's a great purpose for someone to be tied to. But a lot of times I right. think entrepreneurs go down this rabbit hole of the brand that they're selling and their e-commerce brand or the product that they're selling, like is who they are. And you have to work with them to create that separation because their personal brand is so much more than that. Like mm. What they can do and, and what their purpose is so much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to talk about the micro communities, like what we were talking about before we started recording. So just for those of you listening is a little bit of background. You know, we're Eva and I were talking about at the beginning, how really when you create something, it takes a second for you to see this, the fruits of your labor and just really fully experience something that you've created. A lot of people create something and then a month later, they're like, why am I not successful at it? Instead <laughs> of really creating this habit of focusing in something for for a little bit to see it to see it grow. And it sounds like last year you you focused on building these intentional micro communities. Can you talk more about that? Yes. So this is one of my favorite things that I've ever done. And they it's it, I call it my women leaders roundtable series. And it came out of a real dissatisfaction with the networking options that I felt were available to me. And this was before COVID. So the, the two options I often think of is dark, crowded, loud bar on a weeknight or luncheon with like a speaker and tables. You, it's really hard to work the room and you're trying to like eat a salad and listen and blah, blah, blah. And I felt like those were the networking events that I was most frequently <laughs> so true seeing. I think about like the salad when you say the salad it's, uh, it reminds me of like those like buffet salads or like the catered salads that like everyone gets when they go to like a big conference event or networking event exactly yeah, yeah. So you can no one wants those and about. no one wants to go to the bar either no one especially not right now but really is everyone has anyone ever really wanted to network in that type of setting no well, I, I identify as an outgoing introvert and I sure as hell do not like yeah. that. And I, I love, <laughs> and I love meeting people. So I know that it's not that I just, you know, am, am unwilling to meet new people, but I just felt like those environments were so not conducive to making the kind of connections that I wanted to make. And what would often happen is people would say, hi, I, my name is Eva. So what do you do? And you'd get this really kind of aggressive, give me a soundbite of your entire person question right out of the gate, which I found so deeply off-putting as a way to get to know a new human. Yeah. Talk about like a warm-up period. That's like diving so far in, you know, that it's like not even really understanding who someone is before you just get to what they do. Totally. Right. It's like, like flirt with me a little, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, totally. So, 
I, I, so I, I was like, this is, I hate this. I want to meet people in a way that feels intimate, that feels very safe, that feels like contained in a smaller container than a bar. And I really want to be able to have like a deep conversation with someone. That's what I'm going to remember. That's going to give me a feel for them and them a feel for me. And so I was invited to a roundtable conversation by, with, by a colleague, my, my colleague, Aisha Cogborn. And I got the invitation and I was like, I was very, very skeptical. It was a 90 minute Zoom session. And this was actually right before the pandemic kicked off. So Zoom sessions weren't the norm yet. It was a 90 minute conversation. And I was like, Ugh, 90 minutes, like, I don't know about all that. But I really trusted Aisha. And so I gave it a try. And it was one of the most fulfilling networking experiences I'd ever had. It was this loosely structured, intimate call. There were just three of us on the call. Aisha had a couple of slides with questions on them that we all took turns answering. And then we just got to kind of workshop our answers with each other, ask for advice, kind of troubleshoot things if those came up. And it felt so deeply connected in a way that I'd never experienced in meeting new people in a networking environment. I love that. That's so special. Like you think about so people special. who are seeking seeking this type of connection, especially in the last year where people want to network, but obviously we can't even go to the bar. So the things that we even hated doing, we can't do. So <laughs> so that's that's so wonderful that that's that you're creating this community and, and why do you call it like an intentional micro community? Yeah, so I started, I, I basically started offering the same thing that, that Aisha provided to me. And so I started inviting just a couple of women at a time to join me on these in these Zoom conversations. And I would have a few slides and we'd take turn answering questions and getting to know each other. And the feedback that I get is so glowing. I mean, people just feel so deeply connected in these environments. And I what has dawned on me, I've been doing them for almost a year now. And the feedback is just so good. People are just so moved by these experiences. And I've been thinking to myself, like, there's, there's definitely something important going on here. And I was, I was made aware recently of some research done by a woman named Shelly Taylor and a couple of her colleagues about the behavioral response to stress in females. And the kind of stress response that we're used to is um, fight or flight or freeze. Right. So that is pretty well known in like our culture as a stress response. And what this woman's behavior revealed is that in women, there's another stress response that can be seen, which she calls tend and befriend. And it's this idea that one way that women may complete the stress cycle is by being in intentional communities and relationships and collaborations with each other. And the fact that the women who come to my roundtable express feeling so safe and so connected and so relieved to be able to have this kind of a conversation with people that they just met, it got me thinking about how, you know, women entrepreneurs, and this is true of all entrepreneurs, but I think in particular for women, there's a lot of, you know, we have to put ourselves out there a lot and the more bold and opinionated and well, well-known we become, the more we are at risk for getting pushback. And pushback can feel very dangerous 
when you're a woman and, you know, for the ways we're socialized and the way that sexism and patriarchy work. And I think that there's something to this having access to small groups of other women who are having similar experiences and on a similar journey to you so they can really relate to what you're going through and having this kind of safe container that's, you know, structured enough to keep it moving and so that you're not sort of scrambling for what to say but with enough flexibility that it can be spontaneous and the conversation can go in all sorts of directions. I think this is a really important coping strategy and maybe even and an even growth strategy for us to have to have these kind of intimate communities of wing women, even if we only meet once, but to have this experience of safety and intimacy in the company of other women entrepreneurs, I think is, is critical. It, it feels like this is a, a truly safe space for people to connect and network with one another. It reminds me a lot about in the last year, how so many people have been seeking things like this. And I really yeah. feel like, like to a degree, that's, what clubhouse was trying to do or has tried to do, but I'd be curious, like, what are your thoughts on a, an app like clubhouse? Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, wrote an email to my list recently, the subject line of which is no, I will not be joining you on clubhouse. <laughs> and that came out. I of love it. Very straightforward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was sort of me like practicing what I preach, right? Like really putting a stake in the ground and taking a stand for something that I'm doing or not doing. And it came out of my practice of social media monogamy, which is what I call my practice of really just choosing one social media network to use intentionally and very effectively, rather than spreading myself thin and trying to kind of pander to multiple different algorithms and content forms and ways of showing up. And I actually think that Clubhouse is super, super interesting. I think the fact that it's coming out and it's voice only in a time when we've been isolated from each other is really interesting. I think that it's exclusivity, kind of the invitation only part of it is really interesting. So I think when you like, say, wait, 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 when you say interesting, do you mean like, what do you really mean by that? I, I really do mean like academically interesting. Like, I think it's curious the fact that it's happening right now and the way that it's taking off and the fact that you can have really big conversations and can kind of like almost like laterally connect with some really big name people. And you can also have smaller conversations, more intimate ones. So when you say exclusive, you're really like, it keeps it small to where you can't have those intimate conversations, really. Well, when I was saying exclusive, I was thinking about the fact that it has this invitation only. Right. Like that's sort of part of the gimmick, you know, like it, it gives mm -hmm. it this air of exclusivity of like specialness, which other social media networks don't offer. Right. So I think it's, I think it's interesting. I've heard also, I've heard, you know, that women of color have not had the best experiences there. I've heard of that. There's been some anti-Semitism that's gone unchecked there. So it's certainly not immune to the problems that we see whenever humans gather. And I wish that there were better. I wish that these companies took a more proactive role in combating those issues and really cracking down on them and making them just unwelcome on the platform. I agree. The level of or lack thereof community management, I think on the platform, I, I'll be curious to see how they solve for that because yeah, I witnessed yeah. that too and it's just awful. Yeah. What, what have you thought so far of Clubhouse? 
uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know if you call it a passive user, but I just go in and listen. I don't participate in conversations. There's one clubhouse chat that I did with people from the pod that I've had on the podcast and it was good. It was intimate. I loved it, but I have not outside of that. I am not someone that wants to be on stage. I just like to listen and get ideas and hear what other people are thinking and saying, but I find it to be a little bit of a drain personally, even if I am just listening, because it's very self-focused, narcissistic sometimes. It's not, yeah, like I find a lot of the people are just pushing their own agenda and not necessarily doing things because they want to serve other people, which is, I, I think, a huge opportunity in general for us to come together and help each other out, especially during really tough times. I see it more as self-serving in a lot of ways. I've had heard some horror stories of someone telling them to go download something if they want advice. They're like, okay, why are you even <laughs> starting this room and this topic? I'm mixed. I used to really like it. And then I did see some of the the racist behavior happen. And then that kind of threw me for a loop. And then ever since I've just kind of been, I see myself using it less and less as time goes on. But I think the premise of it is interesting because I do think everyone is seeking that connection, right? So like to what you're talking about, there is a need for connection. It's just the way that it shows up is interesting. And I almost thought that, that your answer was going to go down a different path. I like, I thought that you were going to head down a path of talking about how people are almost more guarded when they're using a tool like Clubhouse because anyone can join versus the roundtables that you're talking about is more of like, is a safe space really for people to feel like they can be more vulnerable and themselves. Right. I mean, it's not recorded. It's private. I have at, at most five people in the room, including myself. I remember when the pandemic first started, a lot of people were switching their events to online and were hosting online events, but they you would get there and there would be tens or even hundreds of people in the Zoom room. And it was, it was just chaos. Like it was really hard. And the chat would move so fast. And it was really hard to feel like you could make a meaningful connection with someone when there were just so many people and so much going on in the presentation. And so the roundtable series has been, I mean, I've been quite, quite humbled and moved by how unguarded people are in that environment, you know, even including people who I've never met before. And that's what's been interesting is, you know, I started it a year ago and I just started with inviting people that I already knew. But in every session, I ask my guests to refer one or two people that they know who they think would enjoy the experience. And so to your question earlier, I like that. Yeah. To your question earlier about like kind of what it's taken for it to build its own momentum is it's taken about a year of doing that. And now I'm getting pretty regular influx of people who are who are new to me but come recommended by a friend who are eager to have this kind of an experience and so it's really exponentially growing my network and and introducing me to new people and it's not like the most leveraged scalable strategy right like it's not it's not that and I'm comfortable with that I I don't want to to scale in that way right I'm really more drawn to this kind of intentional steady and sure a couple relationships at a time growth. Yeah. I think that's good because I think that that makes it more special and more memorable. I want to go back really quickly to talk about your social media monogamy practice Yeah, because when I first heard that, 
I like when we were talking before we started recording, I like freaked out. So I was like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine doing that. But I can now in the context of the types of clients you have that are that are service providers versus for me, like working with e-com brands, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I like could not imagine ever giving that advice to like an e-com brand because that's just obviously not from that from that marketing angle. But from a thought leadership service provider, I totally get that. So when you talk about social media monogamy, how do you advise your clients on picking a platform that they can invest their time in? What's the strategy behind that? So you need really two, it needs to meet two criteria. And one of them is that it's important that your customers, your prospects also use the network, which at this point doesn't narrow the pile by very much, right? Like most people are, are probably on a couple of different networks. So the second criteria that's really, really important is that you, it has to be something that you don't hate using. So you can't really force yourself into using Instagram if you're like, I hate reels and I hate Instagram, everything. That is my, that is my philosophy. Yes. But what if your target for a service provider lives there? Well, then you would have to ask yourself the question, does she or he, or, or do they only live there or can I meet them somewhere else? Hmm. Or am I willing to get over my resistance to this platform because it's really important to me to be active there? And perhaps if your only social media responsibility is Instagram and you don't have to expend any energy or learning on the others, it won't, you won't hate it as much because you won't have, it won't be one of many things that you're responsible for doing on social media. Right. And how do people, what are your, what are your recommendations for how people show up? Or do you just kind of have them focus on the monogamy part versus the like frequency part? Does that matter as much? Well, this is where not hating it is really important because, you know, and and the bigger that you get, of course, you're going to outsource, you know, your scheduling, you might outsource some of your notification management of your social media network or networks. Cause I do have clients you know, I, I think of social media monogamy sounds very cut and dry, right? Like just pick one and be monogamous. But in reality, I understand that that's not always practical. And so what I think is, is most important is to be really strategic about why you're using these different social media tools, because they're tools, right? They're not the work itself. And what can happen when we feel like we need to keep up with the reels or tweeting frequency or all the clubhouse chats is the social media can start to feel like the work rather than a tool that is facilitating the work. Yeah, that's so, so true. Everyone listening knows this. Everyone listening who's not even a service provider gets it. We've all been there of just feeling that overwhelm. Regardless of the platform, I think your point's so valid. It's like Twitter, you could, it could be the same exact feeling because Twitter and Clubhouse now, there's so many ways for you to get involved and, and be on the platform all the time that it still can feel really overwhelming. Right. And that's why I think for a lot of thought leaders, it's, it makes a lot of sense to just choose one because then you can do it very, very well. And you're not spreading yourself thin trying to, you know, be on multiple places in all these different ways. And so I think if you're getting started, you try to pick one and get into the practice of using it very regularly whatever that means for you. So in my case, like my primary platform is LinkedIn and I'm on there probably five to 10 times a day, not for a million minutes, but enough to check my notifications, to comment on things that are shared by people who are important to me 
to reach out to new acquaintances, people that I'm meeting in different, you know, online spaces. So I use it. I think LinkedIn is very useful for thought leaders because there's the, it's really powerful for networking, for prospect research, and for marketing. And and who knows, you know, like no one network is the solution forever because they're changing all the time and user, like the way users interact with them are, is changing all the time. So, you know, who knows what will happen with LinkedIn down the line. But for now, I think it's, it's a really good option for thought leaders to your point, Sam, who tend to be, you know, they have, they, they are the brand. It's their kind of their intellectual property and their body of work is really what they're selling. And so having a, pr- a profile that they're very active with there is very, very useful. Yeah. And it's also crazy too, how like LinkedIn, Twitter, all of these different platforms have adopted the stories yeah. thing, right? That Instagram or Snapchat really started. Right. But what you're saying is you don't have to even test all of the new features. You can just show up in a way that feels good to you, right? Yes. You don't have to use stories. You can just comment on people's posts if that feels really comfortable to you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. So where can people find you if they want to work with you? Well, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. (laughs) That was was my plan to ask that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only person with the exact spelling of my name, you know, E-V-A-J-A-N-N-O-T-T-A. That's amazing. Yeah. It's really convenient. And so find me, uh, send me a connection. Make sure you leave me a note and let me know that you heard me on Sam's pod you can also get in touch with me by going to number five, magneticpillars.com, which is my short free email course about the five pillars of magnetic thought leadership. And that's a good way to get in touch because it'll add you to my email community and you can reply to any of those emails and get directly in touch with me. Ooh, perfect. I'm excited for that. I'm going to check that out. That's awesome. And I love that you're so active with your email. I feel like email is so overlooked. And I love that you even talked about that with some of your clients. Like, why? aren't more people involved in email and treating it like a priority. It's such a great channel to communicate with people, not sending someone an email, but like actually creating thought leadership around it. I'm becoming really kind of obsessed with email and it's, I have to give credit to my business coach, Eleanor Beaton, who she writes her email list three times a week, very routinely. And her emails are a riot. They are so fun and funny and informative and thought provoking and she gets tremendous ROI on them. And she also has a has really big names on her list. I mean, the quality is just, it's just phenomenal. I think the reason is because a lot of us got really saturated with marketing emails or like kind mm-hmm. of snoozy, quote unquote, newsletters. And I guess I'm kind of taking, yeah, like a thought leadership micro post almost social media approach to make to my emails of making them really engaging, making sure I'm really saying something in each one, being really informal and personable, and even a little bit silly, and sharing personal details. Sometimes I really want my subscribers to feel like we're friends. And that we you know, we're we have a relationship. And that's why I say to everybody to reply to me because it is a relationship. I'm not just talking at you, I want to be talking with you. And I yeah, I think I mean, it's, it can be tough with deliverability, it can be challenging sometimes and email service providers, there might be some challenges in terms of like getting the, the technology sorted out to suit you. But 
Yeah, the deliverability piece is a big one too, right? Going into the promotions folder or even not even, you know, sometimes having your emails sent. It's way more complex than I think some people make it out to be. Yeah. Can you spell Eleanor's last name just so that we can add that to the show notes? Oh yeah, she's fantastic. Her last name is, she's Eleanor spelled E-L-E-A-N-O-R and her last name is B-E-A-T-O-N. Perfect. I'm going to check that out. That sounds awesome. Yeah. And also I want to sh- share to anybody listening. So I've, I've waxed eloquent about my roundtable series. And if it sounds like something that you would enjoy, please let me know. I mean, it's, it's invitation only, but in the sense that you need to talk to me first, but you can also invite yourself to be invited by me. So please, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn and let me know you're interested in a roundtable because I've had a lot of listeners from podcasts join me and it's been so much fun getting to talk to you in person. Amazing. Thank you so much, Eva, for coming on and talking about thought leadership. And I love the social media monogamy approach. I'm definitely going to start applying that, I think, to my own personal brand because it's overwhelming. And I think that that's going to be a really good practice to get into. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This was awesome. Yeah, Sam, this was fun. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys loved today's episode with Eva. I felt so inspired listening to her talk and it really made me rethink how I'm approaching my personal brand and honestly, why I'm not doing more to build my thought leadership because it can be really tough when you're an entrepreneur. Like I was talking about, you're so embedded in the day-to-day of your business that sometimes you can't really see outside of it. And I want to start becoming better at building my, my personal brand and my thought leadership so that I can bring greater opportunities to me that are not just about my company. So if you love today's episode, feel free to leave us a rating and review in Apple podcasts. I always appreciate it. And I will catch you guys next week. Have a good one. Bye.